This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley, and our guest on the program today is Jerry Mitchell. He has a book, Race Against Time. A reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. Jerry Mitchell worked as an investigative reporter at the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi for more than three decades. His stories have helped to put four Klansmen and a serial killer behind bars. He's won more than 30 national awards, including a MacArthur Genius Grant, the George Polk Award, Columbia's John Chancellor Award, and many other. He is a finalist or has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, last year, he left the paper to create a Center for Investigative Reporting and Race Against Time is his first book. Jerry Mitchell, welcome to Perspectives. Well, thank you so much for having me. And so this is your first book. I know that I yeah. am stop number four on your tour. How's it been going so far? Uh, it's been great. It's been great. Uh, meeting so many people and... and uh, and that's that's kind of the fun part of the book tour is you get to meet new people and and you, and sometimes you end up having interesting connections with them or or these stories. I think that's the the you know last night for example in in Birmingham mm-hmm. that's where the Birmingham church bombing took place that killed those four, four little girls. girls and it just breaks your heart every time you think about it mm-hmm. and and um, so the sister of one of those four little girls was there last night. Mm-hmm along with one of the FBI agents who investigated that case. And so we all kind of came together. It was very fascinating. It was just like almost like family, you know what I said? And and it really becomes that. I, that sounds very odd. But you, it's a very odd thing that draws people together, this pain. You know, it's just awful pain that as Mrs. Damer, Vernon uh, Damer, who's involved in another case, she, widow Vernon Damer, said one time it will never be the past to us you know for for some people they can say well that's the past but she's like you know this this will never be the past for us and, and the pain and Merle Evers the widow Meggers the way she described it was look this is a wound that needs to be cleaned out you know what I mean you can't just say oh just let bygones be bygones and you know we don't, we don't need to talk about that you know uncomfortable past as if you know we're talking about a bridge game or something you know rather than you know murders cold-blooded murders at home in your driveway yeah shot in the back when he's coming home to his family yeah in the middle of the driveway so tell me about this book and when did you know that you were going to put it together uh, three decades ago <laughs> that's when I got into writing about um, quite by accident, because uh, I knew nothing about these cases. When I found myself as a lowly, just courts reporter, getting sent to the press premiere of this movie called Mississippi Burning, and I wound up there with two FBI agents who investigated the case, as well as journalists who covered the case. So all of my press buddies, they all took off. But I was so fascinated and really angry because they proceeded to tell me that more than 20 Klansmen were involved in killing these three young men, James Cheney, Andy Goodman, Mickey Schwerner, killed by the Klan just because they wanted to help African Americans. They were killed for that. 
and their bodies buried 15 feet beneath an earthen dam. What if, if not for the courage, really, of, of someone coming forward and telling the FBI where the bodies were buried, that case would have would have never been solved. And um, so I saw this movie, and what I found out is there were more than 20 Klansmen involved that had never been prosecuted for murder. You know, never? Heard, yeah, never. Uh, and so this is 89, and I'm stunned by this. And it's like, how does that happen? I mean, I kept trying to wrap my head around this. It's Some like, would say it's the South. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I was new to all this, learning all this. Like, you know, we, we know this, and I know this now. But at the time, you know, I was the Civil Rights Movement. I was relatively young. I was living my little sheltered, you know, white bread world. And I didn't know any of this. I was woefully ignorant. And so I was stunned. I was shocked. And then they explain it, and I mean, they were all these, a lot, so many of these cases, they were like all white juries, you know, even all male juries, because in Mississippi there was actually a law, believe it or not, against women serving on juries until 1968. So it were like all these things. It was very fascinating. I, I just, I knew nothing, and then all of a sudden I'm kind of on this trail, and, um, you know, beginning to one at a time begin to kind of look at these cases. You know, what evidence still exists? And I was a courts reporter. So that really, that that background is what really helped me as well to know, okay, well, this could be evidence in a case or maybe this could get the case reopened, that kind of thing. So then walk me through sure, your I, questions that you had, the investigating that you began to do and the results sure, of absolutely. these investigations. I'll, so I, I started off with that one. That, that I wrote about that case I got interested in this thing called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which all the records were sealed for 50 years. Um, Georgia had similar type agencies. Essentially, they were, it was a segregation spy agency. A what? <laughs> it was a segregationist spy, like a, or, or think of it this way, a white citizens council, a state version of the white citizens council. They had a propaganda arm. But they also had a spy arm. Like they would actually pay black speakers to go up north and praise Mississippi segregation laws, believe it or not. That was their propaganda arm. The other arm is a spy arm. So they would infiltrate civil rights groups. They would pay people to go in and infiltrate civil rights groups and then report back on what they were doing. Hmm. Yeah. They would get people fired from their jobs, run out of the state. I mean, they, they did all sorts of planted stories. Paid to plant stories in black newspapers, like like one that was supposedly linking Martin Luther King to communism. They got the black newspaper to run it with this. Oh, this is all schemed out, and there was going the white newspaper was going to pick it up to make the story appear more legitimate. The segregationist paper, and it was awful. And that was the other thing I found as I started you know digging these documents. I found out my own newspaper was a part of that. I'm talking about that you know the Clarion Ledger at the time back in the '60s was was a part of that problem, and. Um, and so I began, so if someone tells me I can't have something, I want it like a million times worse. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. And so all these records, 132,000 pages of spy files, I'm like, oh man, I want to see those. So I began to develop sources that began to leak me the files. And what they show is the same time the state of Mississippi was prosecuting this guy named Byron D. Lebeckwith mm -hmm. for the murder of Meg Rivers in his driveway. 
uh, this, this other arm of the state, the Sovereignty Commission, which was headed by the governor, by the way, was secretly assisting the defense trying to get Beckwith acquitted. Nobody knew that. And my story ran October 1st of 1989. Uh, at the time that my story ran, the odds were literally more than a million to one against the case ever being reopened and reprosecuted. But Merle Edwards, the widow of Medgarvers, believed and some amazing things happened. Jackson police a few months later checked, you know, they're cleaning out a closet and happened to find the crime scene photos of the killing of Meg Rivers, including the fingerprint of Byron Deal Beckwith lifted from the murder weapon. A few months after that, uh, she shared with me her copy of the court transcript that she saved in a safety deposit box, which that testimony, if the, if the witnesses are dead, is preserved. So it's, it, it's, it's actually evidence. And then... The other thing is, which sounds like I'm making it up, is the prosecutor found the murder weapon itself, long-missing murder weapon, in his father-in-law's closet. His father-in-law, like, like kept it as a souvenir or something. I mean, you know, it's like, This is the are gun that kidding? killed Medgar Evers. I think I'll keep it. Is that what you're saying his father-in-law did? I have no idea. I, I, I don't know. It was, he wasn't around to ask. But that's where it was. Absolutely. Incredible. He was a judge. And he, I, you know, this is my best guess. They were cleaning out the closet and they're going, hey, who wants the gun, you know, that killed Meg Revers or the, you know, or the Byron Deal of Beckwith trial or however they said it. And he goes, yeah, I'll take that. But interestingly, I guess we should be grateful he did <laughs> because it ended up being evidence in the trial. Kind of very fascinating, isn't it? I can see how you could get the families of the victims to talk to you because there's this desire yes. for justice. Amen. What about the other side? Talking to Klansmen. You know, here's how, you know, and I'm kind of like the opposite of Mike Wallace. You know, I, I, I and, and I fit the bill. I mean, I'm, I'm in a sense, I'm from their world. You know, I'm a white Southern wasp, you know, I grew up in this very conservative family and, and so, I mean, I remember Beckwith asked me all these questions, Myron Little Beckwith, the killer maker, before he talked to me. I mean, it was a long series of questions. And you know, I could have refused to answer, but I knew he'd love my answer. So I answered honestly. He was like, come on. So I spent about six hours talking to him, absolutely the most racist person I ever spent serious time with. And he was like, inward this, inward this, that. And he was very anti-Semitic. All, all the all the non-white races he believes are quote mud people. He's part of Christian identity, which is a horrible racist thing. And so he, um, anyway, it was starting to get dark, and I thought well, that's a pretty good time to go. He insisted on walking me out to the car, and I'm like, really? Yeah, that that's okay. So he walks me out to the car, and he gets me out to his. If you write positive. Things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. God does not punish you directly. Several individuals will do it for him. And so his wife had made me a sandwich. <laughs> I think you can guess what I did with the sandwich. <laughs> you took it with it, but I bet you didn't eat it. I did not eat it. Yeah. So those are, you know, so he got arrested. In 90, and, and long story short, he uh, was convicted. And I will tell you about the, the day the verdict came in, mm-hmm. just part of that day. He had been in like a monsoon rain. It was just unreal. 
And then anyway, and so when the word guilty, we're in the courtroom and they have a verdict. And when the word guilty rang out, you could literally hear the waves of joy as they cascaded down the hall until they reached a foyer full of people, black and white, who just erupted in cheers. And I just felt chills because the impossible had suddenly become possible. And to date now, there have been, my book covers four cases. All right. This is one of them. This is one of them. And overall, to date, there have been 24 convictions in these. uh, That must give you an incredible sense of pride, being able to give these families the closure that they need to help bring the justice that they were so long denied. You know, there's something that Solomon said one time, you know, supposedly a wise guy. Um, When justice comes, I love the whole thing, but when justice comes, it brings joy. And that's what I saw in these families. And I just get choked up thinking about it because I've gotten to know them extremely well. Um, And to see their joy, to watch these horrible killers who were winked at and sometimes assisted by Mississippi authorities in getting away with murder and uh, to see them finally be punished. It's uh, it's a good thing. Yes, it is. Tell me a little bit about the other three cases. Vernon Jamer was a, this is in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a farmer, businessman, NAACP leader, believed that all Americans should have the right to vote. Klan attacked him and his family in the middle of the night, January 10th, 1966, set their house on fire, began firing their guns into the house. Vernon Jamer woke up, grabbed his shotgun, ran to the front of the house, began firing back at the Klansmen, but unfortunately, the flames of the fire seared his lungs, and he died later that day. A few weeks later, the mail came, his voter registration card. He fought his whole life for the right of all Americans to be able to vote, but never been able to cast a ballot himself. The guy who ordered that killing was a guy by the name of Sam Bowers, the head of the White Knights, the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, there are a ton of stories to tell in that case. Well, a lot of people don't know that case. But it's another example of how many, how many heroic, courageous people were in the civil rights movement in this country, and we owe them our gratitude and thanks. And they, they, they need that. They deserve that. Because, thank God, they stood up and did the right thing. And, and, and they had their lives stolen. They had their careers stolen. Uh, you, you name it. And, um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I, I feel very passionate about that. And, and then the, I guess the other two are the Birmingham church bombing, the four little girls, and, and the, again, what's called the Mississippi burning case, the three civil rights workers, the James Cheney, Andy Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner. And I think it's important to remember their names, you know, all their names I'm talking about. Indeed. In all of your years of reporting, telling these stories, 24 convictions yeah, these were cases beyond me, too. I mean, not just cases I worked on, yes. But that, that was the beginning of 24 cases. Yeah. 
and what you know and learned about the activity of the Klan then. Would you mm-hmm. say it is as active or as strong now? No, I, I would say that uh, I would say that the the Klan today is just. I would say the Klan today is like a, just a shadow of what it was back then. It's, uh, but here's but the deal. But some would argue that well, no, no, it's no. more in the open today than it ever has been. Well, well, here's what's going on, in my opinion. You know, the Klan. You're talking specifically about the Klan as an organization. It's it's just a shadow, but. We are witnessing, no question, the rise of white supremacy and white nationalism. Five years ago, young man, young white man walks into a black church, is welcomed by members, and he kills nine beautiful people. You know what he'd been doing? He got on the Internet and went this went this website called the Council of Conservative Citizens. They are descendants of the White Citizens Council that was started in Mississippi. They are a direct descendant of them. So you want these things are still history is still continuing onward. Well, in other words, the white supremacy. What I'm saying that may not come in the form of what we call the Klan, mm-hmm. which is a, a specific organization, but you've got those kinds of things: white supremacy, this racist crap that gets you know sent out there and uh in in one form or another christian identity it wraps itself in in um in religion and and a lot of the things that christian identity people have done is is basically terrorism i just let that pause right there because you said something we're talking to jerry mitchell his book is race against time a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights area. Jerry Mitchell uh, spent the majority of his career as an investigative journalist. Jerry, journalism is a profession that many would argue, especially those of us who are in it, is a profession that's under attack and deemed by some to be irrelevant or so-called fake news. Uh, Knowing what you know, knowing what you've seen, talk to us about the value Absolutely. of investigative journalism and why it's important that we all still read and get our information from more than one source. Look, we will be honest. Newsrooms are vanishing or, or, or you know, it, you know, in terms of and investigative reporters are long gone. And we need, you know, both in Georgia and Mississippi, we need more investigative reporting, not less. And so I've started a nonprofit in Mississippi that's completely dedicated to that proposition. And we want to grow that, and we would love for it to be a model for the country. That we want to, we want to you know, have top-flight investigative reporting, which I feel like we've done over this past year on Mississippi prisons. We warned everybody, essentially, that these prisons were going to blow up, and they blew up. And, and what, 16 people dead now? And so they wouldn't solve the problem. So I, I think it's, it's, we can't operate as a democracy without information, correct and truthful information. And that's part of the problem right now is people are getting their, their news from some the blogosphere. God knows where they got it from, but because people have some particular mindset or political mindset 
they assumed, oh, well, this is, this is, this is truth. Well, that's why it's so important. We're providing our stories free of charge to every single newspaper in Mississippi. It can run our stories free of charge with all with photos and all, all the stuff that goes with it because we want more. We want, we want the message out so people know, you know, they, they know how to make the proper decisions instead of what so often happens in Mississippi and elsewhere is public officials love to hide their acts or, or to keep the public or they'll spin it in a way that's not really true. I mean, you know, and so what we want to do is do that. We've got a, a group of students. Uh, it's at Millsaps College in Jackson. We have 10 students who are basically working as part of what we call the Justice Squad. So we're taking on not just civil rights cold cases. We've got a, a, what they call a nobody case. This guy was convicted on the basis of degraded DNA. And, and it's, I mean, there, and he's been in prison for 20 years now. And so we're looking at different cases like that. We're looking at uh, juveniles that were sentenced to life in prison. And the U.S. Supreme Court came back and said, you know, these ought to be rare cases. Let's re-sentence these juveniles. Almost without exception, these judges have basically taken, taken those cases the vast majority of them, and resensed them the exact same thing. Or not sensed them, resensed at all. Just kind of, whoop, okay, who cares if the U.S. Supreme Court did that? So it's it's very interesting. I, so I think our work is more needed than, than ever. And this, listen, this is the other thing I would say is I believe journalism is a noble profession. And I think, the, but I do think this, we have to be careful not to get sucked into these kind of ridiculous debates or fights. If someone wants to call us names, right, let's be professionals. They can call us names all day, and by gosh, we are going to print the truth and expose what happens. And write our stories. Amen. So what are you hoping that readers take away from this particular book, your first one, Jerry? Yeah, well, I hope they, I mean, these are stories of some incredibly courageous families. It's, even though it's a memoir, it's really not about me, I feel like. It's really about these families. It's about how did these cases come to be reprosecuted? What all happened? And what are the sequence of events? And, of course, I'm telling it from my own perspective. And, um, but it's been, it also shows, I think, the power of journalism to be able to bring about change. At its best, journalism, good journalism, inspires a society to do the right thing. The book is Race Against Time. A reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. If you're a student of history, is a student it's, of just good stuff. It's, it's a, it reads like a detective novel. It does. It reads like a Grisham book. Yeah. I've, what I've read of it, it reads just like, so if you love Grisham and those types of books, this is definitely one for you. Jerry, how are you staying engaged with readers? I mean, this is your first I, book. It's I, out. How, how can they give you feedback? Well, they can follow me on uh, Twitter or uh, Twitter or Instagram, uh, J Mitchell News. Uh, Mitchell with two L's and uh, I'm on Facebook as well Jerry Mitchell reporter so and the other thing that you, you, your uh, listeners may be interested in is uh, 
every day on Facebook and Twitter, I post this day, today in civil rights history. So people don't know, like today, the other day was the anniversary of the conviction of Byron Deal Beckwith, mm-hmm. 94. And today is the anniversary of when Frederick Douglass led a delegation of African-Americans to meet with the president of the United States and basically warned him, don't go down this road of, you know, letting the southern states just do whatever. You know, the right to vote for all Americans is important. And he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't have any part of it. And we suffered historically because of that. But what, what a courageous act. What a courageous act. Jerry Mitchell, it's been a pleasure. Thanks Thank for you. coming in. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condos Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.